Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rhinon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rhinon, may the Lord forgive your servant this. Go in peace, Elisha said. Luke four twenty seven, And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elijah the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. This is the word of the Lord. Keith and I decided we'd go a little old school today since we're moving into the summertime and the living is easy. We've got a Tommy Bahama mindset with many of our folks. I'm using an old sermon title. Seven Ducks in a Muddy River, preached first, I believe, at Central Park Baptist Church, Inslee, Alabama, 1955, when Central Park Baptist was the largest attended Baptist church in the state of Alabama. Dr. Wayne Dahoney, an old friend of mine, was the pastor at the time and uh, used to pull that sermon title out about once a year and use it. And so I thought I would... Today, I would have worn, for old school, I would have worn a white suit, white shirt, white bucks, red tie if I'd have had it, and uh, just put us all in that kind of a mood, but I didn't, so we'll move on. I noticed that Lawrence has a nice seersucker suit on, and so he's helping me out with that. Believe it or not, I spent uh, my high school years at Millersburg Military Institute. My mom and dad thought little Timmy would be helped by spending some time at Millersburg, and I can tell you, I was helped. Uh, It was a school that was absolutely military. We wore Army fatigue six days a week, Army combat boots, uh, reveille in the morning. We would uh, gather out there in formation. Uh, Before we would march to breakfast, we would march to breakfast, stand in line at parade rest as we went through cafeteria-style Uh, we had an inspection. This man right there, General Burba, came and did the inspection once. Uh, I'll never forget it. We had worked and worked and worked to get ready on this inspection. Our room had a concrete floor. And we used Johnson Paste Wax. Some of you may not know what that is, but (laughs) believe me, it's out there. You can still find it every now and then. Johnson's Paste Wax, and we would get on our hands and knees and shine, buff, that concrete floor over and over and over again. Each student was assigned an M1 rifle, and we would take that rifle totally apart, completely apart, clean it, put it all back together, hand it to the sergeant, and he would do it again. I did my third times. I'm not kidding you. 
before it passed inspection finally. On the day of the inspection of General Burba, he came in there on a big old Huey helicopter and landed on the football field, which was right behind the building that I was in. So the whole place is just shaking like this. We'd worked so hard. We got the floors ready. We had our M1s ready. Uh, Our beds, you could take a 50-cent piece back when you could get a 50-cent piece, flip it on that bed, let it hit, and it would just flip several times. Two fingers between each hanger in our closets. General Burba was coming through our dormitory, and he got into our room. He came up and looked me right in the face. I'm standing there at attention by my bed, and he looked me right in the face, nose to nose, and my leg, my knees were shaking just like this. He took that mean scour off his face but when he saw my leg shaking and just put a little bitty smile, not a big one, but a little bitty smile on his face and left. After that, we had a parade. And, and so we're all dressed up in our uh, dress uniforms. Ours were gray and red and uh, officers with sabers, we uh, were out there marching, uh, and he's up on a reviewing stand, and, and we were in parade review. The military people here will know exactly what that is. That's a specific term, parade review. We were, we were doing that. We were marching down in front of General Burba, and then we were given the order, eyes right. And when we were given that order, we, of course, turned our eyes, continued to march forward, fixed our eyes on General Burba, and and, uh, marched on until we were given the order, eyes front, and we marched along. It was, was, I'll have to say it was a good experience for me looking back uh, all these years later, but uh, they were very serious about it, and it was good for me. But I like parades. I like military parades, and I can just imagine what a military parade there must have been with General Naaman uh, when he came back from any of the many wars that Syria fought. He was famous. He wasn't a four-star general like General Burba. This guy, I know, had five uh, stars on him, and, and I can just imagine what the parade would have been like as it was heading through the streets of Damascus. All of the people would have been out there. The children would have been giggling. They would have been excited about this parade. In a few moments, you could hear on those cobblestone, uh, handmade streets, the clap, clap, clap of horses starting down through there. They were bringing all the cavalry, all of the artillery that they had, the, the foot soldiers with Spears and shields and all of those, I'm sure, would have been spit-polished. And Naaman is on a big white horse, and he's leading the parade down through Damascus. Everyone's looking. He's got a beautiful sash thrown over him. Behind Naaman is all of the goodies that they had taken in the last campaign they had had, so their chests on carts coming behind him. Those chests were filled with gold and uh, every uh, kind of expensive item 
that you could think of. He's leading it. That slash, that sash he has, brightly covered. It's blowing back in the breeze. And and but on closer inspection, when you would have looked at that sash uh, on Naaman on his big white horse, you'd have realized that it was carefully tucked around one of his hands and an arm. That sash was carefully tucked because they were trying to hide the fact that Naaman had leprosy. Now, leprosy has always been bad, but a leprosy uh, disease in those days was horrible. There was no cure for it whatsoever. And so the fact that Naaman had been so successful and Naaman had so such a huge pile of goodies made very little difference at this time because he's dying. And not only was he dying of leprosy, but he was beginning to show some of those signs uh, that a human body shows with leprosy, which is awful. I'm not going to go into a description of what happens with a human body with leprosy, but let me just tell you, it is awful. And so there are early signs there, and, and uh, some of the people had noticed it. But let's move our scene now from that parade to Naaman's house. You see, Naaman had been given a young Hebrew girl that had been taken. We don't know her name to this day. But this young Hebrew girl had been taken in one of the battles that Syria had. And Syria was all, always going out and hitting on other areas, especially in the Samaria. They got popped by Syria just almost on a regular basis. But they had taken this Hebrew girl and she was living in Naaman's house. And Naaman's wife loved her. They became very close. And she noticed that Naaman's wife was so upset and, and was in tears one day. And the young girl told her, she said, I just wish that we could get Naaman to Israel because there is a prophet in Israel who could bring healing to Naaman. And so the wife became excited. There had been not an indication of hope for Naaman at all whatsoever up to this point because he had this terminal disease. And so the wife told Naaman, Hey, I've heard there's some guy in Israel that can bring healing to you. Do you think there's any way that you could go there and maybe seek this out? So Naaman became excited and he went and talked to Ben-Hadad, who was the uh, king of Syria, and asked for an entree into King Joram, who was the king at Samaria. He said, would you, would you give me permission? Would you give me an entourage to go? Uh, would you give me some good things to take with, with me? And of course, Ben-Hadad, who knew the value of this five-star general, was glad uh, to send him off with all kinds of stuff. So they put together, the Bible tells us specifically what uh, Naaman took. But the people who have looked at that today tell us that the bounty that Naaman took with him was about $100,000 in, in our day and time. So he took a huge booty. He goes 150 miles from Damascus to Samaria. 
He's, he goes through the valley of Jezreel. He starts heading to, to Samaria. And Samaria is built on a big hill. And King Joram of Syria is in this, uh, or Samaria is in this elaborate palace up on that hill. And Naaman goes in there and he brings with him a letter that Ben-Hadad had written to King Joram that basically says this, <laughs> Cure Na- Naaman of leprosy. I mean, that was it, basically. That's the bottom line. Cure Naaman of leprosy, Ben-Hadad. Now, you can imagine what uh, a letter like, you know, nobody had a cure for leprosy in that day. Nobody could even help in any way. It was bad. It was a disaster. It was terminal. You were done. Over. Finished. That was it. So, the, so King Joram is reading that letter and he's thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? He starts doing what everybody of that day would have done when they got that kind of bad news. He starts ripping his clothes. I mean, he's ripping them off. Yeah, you know, it's over. What am I going to do? This is horrible. How am I supposed to cure leprosy? Of course, he's not letting Naaman hear this. He stepped over to the side and he's looking at somebody. How am I supposed to cure leprosy? And he thinks, well, something's up here. I know what Ben-Hadad's doing. You can't trust him. He's, he, he knows we can't cure leprosy. So he's just looking for any excuse to come in, take us over, kill us again, or, or kill, uh, you know, take over again, get all the booty one more time, we're done, it's over. And so uh, there he is. But somebody uh, heard him, somebody heard his cries and said to him, hey, you know, there's this prophet here named Elisha. Send him to him. He's, a, he's the prophet of the one true God. He can take care of it. We'll just send him to Elisha. And so King Joram says to Naaman, well, we've got somebody we want you to go talk to. He can heal you. He can take care of it. So now imagine this entourage. You've seen it several times, I'm sure, in today's world. When the president takes off and goes anywhere, you know, the entourage that is around him, that's unbelievable. Well, uh, Five-star General Naaman was kind of in the same situation except in that culture of that day. I mean, he's got all kinds of people with him. He didn't ride 150 miles by himself. There are soldiers around him, crack soldiers, uh, uh, the special guard that you would have, you know, the best of the best, the elite special forces. They're the ones that are around him, and they start moving from uh, the king's palace and they're going to go find Elisha. And here they take off, uh, I, it, kind of like this. Uh, they're starting off in the best part of town. Big, big buildings all around. Big, fancy houses all around. And Naaman takes off with his entourage. If you've been to the Dominican Republic, you know what a stark situation it is. You can start on one end of that island. Man, the nicest resorts. Really nice. Then you keep moving toward the other side of the island and it gets really rough, really bad. Well, that's what's happening with Naaman. Naaman starts off, he's in the resorts, the big palaces, the the nice homes, and they keep moving along. He's on his white horse. They're riding and whoo, things are starting to look pretty rough around here. I mean, we're getting into housing projects and, you know, there are all kinds of people out here that look, 
really bad, and but he keeps moving and moving along, and finally he gets to where that he's been told that Elisha lives, and I mean it's a shack. It's bad, and so, but he he announces when he gets there, hey Naaman is here, and uh, and I need healing, and so he's expecting. Uh, something big to happen. Nothing happens at first, so I'm sure he hands the uh, the servant that was out there. He said, "Hey, here's five bucks. Will you go in and get Elisha?" And he's sitting there on his horse. And uh, pretty soon, uh, this servant comes out of the house. Elisha's not coming out at all. He sends the servant back out and just says, "Well, Naaman, Elisha says, go dip yourself." seven times in the Jordan River and you will be healed. And and Naaman goes ballistics. I mean, try to picture that. Try to picture the situation. You've been given the coldest shoulder and he's thinking, does this man know who I am? Go dip myself in the Jordan River. The Jordan River was filthy. It runs from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a dirty river. And, and this man didn't even have enough respect for me. I could kill everybody here right now. He didn't even have enough respect for me to come out and deliver this message. I'm... I'm out of here. He was so angry at Elisha for dissing like he did. So he rears his big white horse like the Lone Ranger used to do and he starts his entourage back headed back toward the nicer side of town and he is just, he could bite a nail in two he is so angry at this whole deal, and he's thinking, you wait till I get back and tell the king what this jerk did to me and how this jerk uh, king in Samaria dealt with me. You know, you've been there yourself probably. Can't wait to talk to him. Let him know. The king will say, let's just come and wipe it out, you know. And that's what's going through his mind over and over again. And then one of the servants that was with Naaman stopped him for just a second. He said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Naaman. If this prophet would have said to you, you crawl on your hands and knees for 150 miles back to Damascus and you would be healed He said, you would have done it, Nathan. Yeah, you're right. And he said, think about this. If that prophet would have told you to go live in a cave for eight months, eat nothing but wild berries and honey, and spend four or five hours every day in meditation, you would have done it. And Naaman said, yeah. He said, I guess you're right. 
So now that he said to you, go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River, don't you think maybe you should do that? And by the way, it's on the way. It's on the route. We can easily do it. No inconvenience. Let me tell you something, folks. I've been through this personally. We're offered salvation through Jesus Christ by God. And the Bible teaches us that if we repent of our sins, turn to Christ, accept Him as Savior and Lord, we're saved. We don't need a philosopher, we don't need a scientist. We don't need a politician. That's it. It's a simple formula. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your hearts that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's as simple as that. But this was too simple for Naaman at first. And for many of us, it's a stumbling block. I know myself, when I accepted Christ as my Savior and Lord, I told my dad before I did that, I said, Dad, that's too easy. That's too simple. I've heard that all my life, but that's just a little too simple. And he continued to talk to me, and God helped me see that. There may be someone in this room who's never taken the first step towards salvation. It's simple. I've just talked to you about it. it it's a believing in your heart uh, that, that Christ has been raised from the dead. It's putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And you might be like Naaman. You may have been thinking, you know, hey, you got all these religions out here today and you got all this stuff going on. I've read this book. I've read that book. I've even read the Bhagavad Gita. I mean, it just can't be that easy. Well, it is. It is that easy. And it's offered to you today. Now, there may be some of you in this room that you've walked out a lot. And you've heard this many times. You've been given opportunity to accept Christ as Savior and Lord. And yet you have been so proud, you've been arrogant, you've been self-righteous, and you've thought it's too easy Uh, It just can't be that simple. I pray that sinner's prayer and I have the promise of eternal salvation. Well, Naaman finally wised up. He finally went to the Jordan River and he finally got out in it. He stepped down off his high horse, his big white horse. He took off the uniform with all the medals hanging on it. He got out into the river and he dunked himself. Once, coming up, he still had leprosy, but he lost all that old filthy pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. He dunked himself again. He still had leprosy, looked at himself, but he had lost all of those... uh, 
problems that he'd had uh, all through the years, those uh, sinful thoughts that he'd had. He dunked himself again, again, again. And then on the seventh time, he went down into the water and he came up a clean man. Is there anyone here this morning who would like to come up a clean man or a clean woman? You may have heard this story. You may have heard the gospel all of your life. But you may have never taken the opportunity to do what I'm talking about. And that is turn from yourself, your your selfish, self-centered ways, turn toward Jesus Christ and accept Him as Savior and Lord. I want to give you the opportunity to do that this morning by praying what we call the sinner's prayer. There may be someone here this morning who's not an active member of a local church. I believe very strongly to be in the center of God's will, you need to be an active member of a local church. And so we'd invite you to consider Brookwood Baptist Church or whatever decision God has placed on your heart. I would invite you to do it the old-fashioned way, and that is walk forward and tell us all about it. Let's do that while we sing our hymn of invitation. Would you stand and sing with me, please?